Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. This sermon for Sunday, March 13th, 2022, is entitled, The Ones and the Many. It's a reflection on a reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find out more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, United Church of Christ, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Thank you. Friends, our scripture reading today comes from the New Testament, from the Gospels. We continue reading in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Let's listen together for a living word from God for us in these words from Luke, chapter 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures. Today, tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing See, your house is left empty. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, God is still speaking to the world and to us. May our hearts be open to listen and to respond. Amen. I am a big fan of trying to make Jesus read less like a comic book character and more like a real flesh-and-blood person. Less of a Superman, perhaps, and more of a man, if a super one. A really, really good human being, even the very best kind of human being, along with however else we conceive of his relationship with the divine. Because otherwise, the whole Jesus story, for me, is reduced to an exercise in largesse. God deigning to give the hungry world a fish, even if it is the very best, tastiest fish ever, when I believe the point of the gospel is so much more about teaching us how to fish, that is, how to live. Jesus may have died for us, and that idea is much trickier and much stickier than most of the churches who bumper stick it might care to admit. But even Jesus can't live for us, can't live our lives for us. No one can. That's up to us. 
Lucky for us, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as he's called in the letter to the Hebrews. Jesus shows us the way, the way to live. He embodies it as he navigates the myriad everyday challenges of loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving ourselves in a social reality that operates according to very different principles. Where the wheels of the privileged few are greased with the blood, sweat, and tears of the many. So how, Jesus, how? How do we best love our neighbors in our own day and time? Because this godly dedication to the caring for each and every one of our neighbors, one by one, feels like it sometimes clashes with the also godly commitment to transforming the social systems that are wounding so many people in the first place. Both are ways of loving. But Jesus, which is better? Which is more important for us? There's a story, a parable of sorts, that's been making the rounds since at least the early 1970s. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there were several folks who saw a child in the river drowning. They rushed out and rescued the child, and, sudden, and they applied artificial respiration, but suddenly they noticed that there were two more children in the river. And they rushed out and they saved those children. And then there were four more children, then eight, and then 16. They began calling for help and marshalling greater resources to form a human chain to save the children who were drowning in alarmingly increasing numbers. At last, one of the rescuers broke away from the group on the bank and walked away up the river. The others yelled, where are you going? You have to help us save these children. The hell with that, he replied. I'm going upstream to see who's pushing them in. I like this version, which comes from Dr. Reginald Laurie, chair of the President's Commission on Mental Health in Children, in testimony before the U.S. Congress in 1971. Often, this story is framed as a conflict between charity, that is, tending to the immediate needs of the injured and oppressed, pulling them out of the river, and justice, that is, confronting the powers and principalities, changing the systems that are fueling all of that injury and oppression that are throwing people in the river in the first place. As a pastor for over 22 years now, I've seen this conflict acted out in local congregations among factions who argue that either we must care for the needs of hurting people or we must address the systems that are hurting them. But we can't do both, especially in an environment of limited, even shrinking resources. That scarcity mentality always makes things worse, doesn't it? I appreciate the reflection on this tendency offered by the Reverend Mark Wingfield. Reverend Wingfield is the executive director and publisher of Baptist News Global, an independent online news source that covers 
the people, events, and ideas that are shaping American religion and culture from a perspective that is Baptist in heritage and ecumenical in spirit. And they do a really, really good job of it, he says with more surprise in his voice than he probably should. In an opinion piece from last year titled Charity Versus Justice, Reverend Wingfield puts it this way, with a few asides from me. The problem for way too many people in the church is that charity looks like missions. A church word and an idea that we're comfortable with in our contexts in American Christianity. But justice looks like politics. And God forbid the church gives even the appearance of engaging in politics, unless it's your preferred politics. And that's a nice, ambiguous you there for us to chew on. Here's a current day example, he goes on. We cannot talk about refugees without talking about immigration. Yet there are some in the church who will volunteer and give their money to refugee ministries, but become offended when the topic turns to immigration policy. I think the softer but no less potent version of getting offended is calling something too complicated for us to get involved with. Back to Reverend Wingfield. Again, it's nice these folks are willing to love and serve refugees. That's fantastic. But that is the work of plucking people out of the river and giving them dry clothes. The love of God compels us to ask how those refugees got in the river in the first place and why they nearly drowned before anyone helped them out. We have refugees to serve because of immigration and immigration policy and immigration and international politics. And of course, we see this conflict being played out over any number of individuals and issues as basic as food, hungry people, and why they're hungry, clothing, homelessness, abortion, gun violence, even the war in Ukraine, and the legislative attacks on queer and trans people, particularly kids in Florida and Texas that are occupying our news cycles this week. Myself, I am inclined to see all of this not as a conflict to be debated and eventually resolved one way or the other, but a tension that will always be with us, and for a good reason. Because there are no individuals separate from systems, and there are no systems separate from individuals. People are not issues, but issues affect people, and people affect issues. We cannot have one or lots of ones without the other. Justice without charity can be cold, ruthless, even destructive in its own way, willing, sometimes even glad, to let individuals continue to suffer in the present moment for the sake of a future victory. Here I'm inspired by the words of Catholic Monsignor Peter Elliott, reflecting on the legacy of St. Vincent de Paul, advocate for the poor. On the other hand, charity without justice can be too personal 
fickle even. It can make the welfare of the poor and oppressed depend on the will and disposition and peculiar moral sensibilities of the rich and powerful. By itself, charity is at once both short-sighted and never-ending. And here I'm informed by the work of international AIDS, HIV scholars, Tony Barnett and Alan Whiteside. We may have our own personal and indeed congregational preferences for either charity or justice and our own aptitudes for the work, but it's never ever an either or. It's always a both and. If we feel called to a particular charitable cause, that's great. That's a good thing. But we are obligated also to educate ourselves about what's causing that cause and support the folks who are doing the justice work necessary to end it. And if we feel called to address a particular issue of injustice, that's great. That's a good thing. But we are obligated also to learn about the people whose actual lives are at issue with that issue and support the folks who are doing the charitable work they need done right now. Both are necessary. Necessary and complementary contractions, the lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub of healthy, whole, loving hearts and a healthy, whole, loving community. Now, believe it or not, all of the preceding was inspired by the five brief verses of our reading from the Gospel according to Luke today. When I first read these verses in preparation for this sermon, wondering where they might take me, I was doubtful. These verses don't seem so much like a story as filler, as the stuff that comes in between the stories, particularly in between Luke's great stories, the stuff we usually, I usually skip over. It just feels so in between. But as I sat with it for a while and turned it this way and that in my mind, I began to see its in-betweenness less as a bug and more a feature. Here is Jesus Christ, 100% divine, sure, and 100% human too. And what could be more human than being in between? In between here and there, past and future, success and failure, literally between life and death caught up in an inescapable network of tensions, pulling us one way and another and another and another. Here is Jesus, caught in between his ministry with the masses in Galilee and what he can only correctly predict will be a showdown with the powers that be in the capital city of Jerusalem that will cost him everything. Caught between, on the one hand, staying safe, or at least safer, 
out in the countryside and continuing his ministry of healing the sick and binding up the brokenhearted, caring intimately for the poor, the oppressed, and the very most vulnerable in society. Or on the other, heading into the capital to take his agenda of total liberation directly to the secular and religious authorities and colonizers intent on keeping them that way. I imagine that at least this is some of what goes through Jesus' head after he receives the warning from the Pharisees, no less, that King Herod Antipas is looking to kill him. What's a Messiah to do? Should he tend to those in need? God knows there's an endless supply of them. Or should he go and do what he is uniquely called and qualified to do and change the world that way? Should he keep fishing the drowning children out of the river? Or should he go and tell whoever, whatever is throwing them in to stop? I love how in this passage, Jesus makes a way forward that allows for both essential movements. He makes a compromise with the two compelling, competing goods vying for the investment of his time and energy and attention. Go and tell that old fox, Herod, hold your horses. There are more important people, imagine that, more important than you. Suffering people who need me here. And while I can't heal them all, I can heal a few more today, tomorrow, and the next day. And they're worth it. But I will see you soon enough, your majesty. How else can I prove that I'm a true prophet of God's justice, peace, and compassion unless I go to Jerusalem and get killed like all the other prophets who spoke the truth of life to your death-dealing power? Both and. Charity and justice, working like hammer and tongs to reshape the world. Jesus won't let even a direct death threat deter him. Won't let it pull him off center from the way of life he's describing for his disciples. For us. This is the very same needle we are trying to thread for ourselves today. We struggle to see, really see the individuals in need right in front of us and tend to their wounds while simultaneously keeping our eyes on the ultimate prize that will end suffering for the all too many. This is the tension in which we are caught up as followers of the way Jesus described by his life, yes, and his death, yes, and even by his resurrection. A visceral sign for the least of these that it will not always be like this. That another world, a better world, is possible. The sort of world we are striving, not, striving for, not just, just cause, not just because wouldn't it be nice, but precisely for the sake of all of those in need. 
Again, Mark Winfield of Baptist News Global and Jesus, the two of them, inspire me to sum up this life-giving tension, both the bug and the feature this way. Charity promises people a better life someday and cares for them until that day. Justice works to hasten the day when God's kingdom will come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven for once and for all, for one and for all, for the many and all the ones. This work of the gospel takes both the folks wading into the river and the folks walking upstream to get it all done. And beloved, that is the point. It's got to get done. And so friends, if you've heard the word of God here today, remember to give all honor and glory to our one God, creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.